0: Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a Pragmatic Marketing instructor and self-proclaimed pricing expert. Today I'm joined by a world-renowned pricing expert, Ron Baker. Now Ron was a CPA who realized he was documenting wealth and wanted to learn how to create wealth. He started an an organization called Verisage Institute almost 20 years ago now, and has been helping professionals learn how to create and capture more value. He's written seven books, is currently a co-host of the radio show, The Soul of Enterprise, and he's a LinkedIn influencer with over 200,000 followers. Welcome, Ron.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Well, first, count me as one of your followers, please.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: (laughs) And and I have to say, you really are an influencer. Have you ever had one of those experiences where where you had an impact on somebody's life, and yet you're pretty sure they don't even know it? Hmm. And it turns out that you had an impact on my life, and you probably don't remember this. Oh, boy. Nine years ago. I was a pricing person at National Semiconductor. I'd already been a CEO. I'd already been a professor. And I was working in pricing, and I hated it for a big company. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I called you up, and I said, would you spend some time with me? And you spent some time on the phone. And I asked, what's it like to become an independent pricing consultant, coach, etc.?" cetera? And, and you described your world to me. And then the words you said to me that I loved were... Hey, the water's warm. Jump on in. There's plenty of room for all of us. Yep. And your encouragement made me become a pricing expert. So thank you very much.
1: Wow. Thank you, Mark. That makes my day. (laughs) That's what we call an HSD, a high satisfaction day. So thank you.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. It's lovely when we can touch people's lives. That's one of my favorite things in life. Absolutely.
1: Yep. And I don't believe that yeah i don't believe in competition i believe there's enough work out there for everybody so always happy to because i you know so many pricers over the years have helped me people like reed holden tom nagel and others you know they've taught me the ropes and it's just it's just giving it back right it's just paying it forward
0: yep absolutely and it's such a fun field too
1: it is and i just love how it's grown
0: so um let me start with a basic question what's verisage
1: Verisage is a think tank I started, and like you said, to about 2000. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I didn't want to start a consulting firm. I didn't want employees, but I wanted to work with really, really smart people who were dedicated to the same ideas and ideals as me. And Verisage, a think tank model, seemed to make the most sense. So we put together the name, which is Veracity and Sagacity, so True Wisdom. And uh, I get to work with 22 fellows uh, spread out around the world. Some of them are consultants like yourself and others are uh, practicing either as CPAs or lawyers or ad agency or IT firms. Uh, But they live and breathe value pricing and and they operate as a knowledge firm rather than a professional service firm. So we like to call them professional knowledge firms rather than professional service firms.
0: Yeah, I know several of your fellows and everyone that I know is bright people, um, very helpful, super nice. So I I love your, your, the fellows that I know.
1: Yeah, they, they are, they're great people and they're willing to talk to any, anybody who's, who seriously wants to look at their business model and perhaps change it. And that's the kind of folks I wanted to surround myself with. So it's, it's just been incredible, uh, working with these people.
0: Uh, Excellent. I know that you work mostly in the professional services spaces. Do most of your people work in professional services as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, we're kind of focused in that area. I'm a recovering CPA. So that's my background. But I do a lot of work with law firms, uh, ad agencies, and uh, IT firms and CPA firms, uh, some actuarial, some engineering, but it's mostly CPA law and ad, and ad agency and, and software firms, IT consultants.
0: Okay. And would you say that your claim to fame or your big idea is stop charging by the hour?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm I'm the guy literally who is trying to uh, give the billable hour and the timesheet, by the way, Mark, is they're inextricably linked. Uh, I'm trying to give it the death penalty. So you could say I'm the lead prosecutor. But b- more than that, I, and I'm really proud, I think I was the first guy to really make this connection and bring it publicly to all the professions. The billable hour is Karl Marx's labor theory of value. It's been absolutely discredited. And that's why it's such a crappy and suboptimal pricing method um, because it's based on a flawed theory, the labor theory of value.
0: It's almost like cost plus pricing for services people.
1: Yeah, it, it it is, except really labor doesn't have a lot to do with cost other than you can make the argument, well, if we pay these people by the hour. But it's it it's even worse than that. It really says that if I put more time into something – Uh, it becomes more valuable to the customer, and and that's just absurd. If if that were true, a rock found next to a diamond in the mine would be of equal value because, after all, it took the miners just as much time to find the rock as it did the diamond. But I go into jewelry stores, I don't see many rocks. Or today for lunch, maybe you'll have pizza. Well, your 100th slice should be just as valuable as your first because it took the pizza person just as much time. But your hundredth slice of pizza or your hundredth beer isn't going to be worth the same to you as your first or second. Um, Karl Marx didn't take into account the customer. He only looked at it from the, the, the producer's side.
0: Okay, so just because I'm enjoying this, let's push, let me push back just a little bit. It's obvious to me as a pricing person that we want to price based on how much somebody's willing to pay us. And so, in the professional services, that'd be for the project, not by the hour. And yet, oftentimes, and I teach this to people as well, our buyers don't realize that. Our buyers often want to buy, they think they're buying based on cost plus. And so, by charging by the hour, it's almost like I've assured them I'm pricing fairly.
1: It does, except. But but the problem with with hourly rates is an hourly billing in general is the customer doesn't have any certainty in price, and they are they are assuming hundred percent of the risk. Um, you know, the slower the firm works, the more money it makes. The less it knows, the slower it goes, the, the more it makes. It doesn't make any sense from the customer standpoint. This is why most other businesses on the planet give us a fixed price.
0: Oh, absolutely. I- I remember going in to get a new battery for my car one day. Actually, I was buying something that wasn't a battery. I was buying something else. And I remember seeing an ad for batteries. And I could have my battery replaced for $79. But what they didn't say was the battery was 50 and we're going to charge you by the hour for the labor. It was a flat rate. Right. So that made me feel comfortable. It's like I know what it's going to cost. I'll pay you 79 bucks. Give me a new battery.
1: Yep, and th- and that's the big flaw in hourly billing cuz customers would actually be willing to pay more for certainty in price. This is why most people select a fixed rate mortgage, right? Over it doesn't have anything to do with the cost to the bank of processing mortgages. In fact, for the bank, it's more expensive to process a variable rate mortgage cuz they have to recompute the payment periodically, but customers are willing to pay to avoid or mitigate or reduce risk. I mean, it's why I have earthquake insurance here on my home in Northern California, but my insurance company doesn't know when the next one's gonna strike. They don't know how big it's gonna be. They don't know what the damages are gonna be. So that's not cost plus pricing, that's pricing risk. And I think professional firms need to get better at pricing risk.
0: Okay, well let's tie this into a concept that's probably much more familiar to the people that are probably listening to us. And that would be professional services and software. Yep. Oftentimes, organizations have professional services to help them do the implementation for initial setups for new customers. Yep. And and every time I've been involved with that, I can tell you they charge by the hour, not by the job.
1: Right. And and I think that's terrible because you know if if you think of yourself as a professional one of the first tenants of being a professional is somebody who takes responsibility for producing an outcome, not delivering a series of tasks. So you're, you're actually looking at moving somebody from point A to point B. That's what a professional does. And if you do that by the hour, then everything becomes a series of six minute or one hour tasks. And, and it takes your, I think it takes your focus off of the outcome to the customer. The customer's paying for an outcome and, that's what we've got to deliver. How we get there is almost immaterial, right? I mean, no, no, nobody goes into a Porsche dealership and looks at the car and says, wow, what an awesome car it turns around to the salesman. Can I see the timesheets on that? You care about the outcome. And that's what fo- that's what these software firms need to focus on is getting the customer to an outcome, a go-live date or, or whatever it might be.
0: I think one of the fascinating things you said earlier was who's assuming the risk when we charge by the hour, it's the client that assumes the risk. And if we charge by the job, it's the vendor that assumes the risk.
1: Yep, but it's a prudent risk. First off, let me just say all profits come from risk, right? I mean, if you, if you want certainty in life, put your money in the T-bill. Don't, don't, don't start a business. All, all, all profit comes from risk.
0: Can you hear right? my brain churning after you said that?
1: Yes, because um, if you, well, if you think of, let me just give you a, a econ one hundred and one: land, labor, capital. Right? Land throws off rents, and capital throws off uh, interest, dividends, cap gains, and and labor throws off wages. Where? Do, I, I, and I ask this question all the time, Mark, of, of of really smart people. I've even asked a room full of uh, Fortune one hundred CFOs. I ask them, where do profits come from? I get blank stares. Profits come from risk. There's no guarantee when 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 Steve Jobs built the iPad the iPod there was no guarantee of profit it wasn't it was uncertain there's no guarantee so profit comes from risk so we can't run away from risk we need to embrace it and my point is especially for a software company but even for a legal firm it's much easier for the producer to spread the risk than it is for the customer. The customer's only got one big software implementation, but the firm may do hundreds of them or thousands of them in a year. So it's much easier for them to spread risk. But if you reduce risk for the customer, it's kind of like a teeter-totter. If you reduce their risk, you can get a higher price.
0: Absolutely brilliant. And you see that in, in so many different businesses where you take the risk away. Someone's gonna pay you more money.
1: Look at insurance companies, uh, you know, first off insurance companies, uh, whoever came up, they don't even call it price. They call it premiums, which I think is brilliant. But all of us think about the psychology, all of us buy all types of different insurance, but we're thrilled when we don't use it. I, for one, am thrilled. I didn't trigger my life insurance policy this year or my disability policy, um, And and that's, that's the psychology I want to do. So what we advocate for software uh, firms is that they also offer access level agreements for that ongoing support. So rather than that break fix mentality, you know, when the customer's software system goes down or something, they call, they, you're kind of like a fireman. You're more like a fire insurance salesman.
0: Yep. And, And doesn't that make sense? Insurance companies make a lot of money. They do. And, and yet they're assuming the risk and the idea is they're sharing that risk across a whole bunch of clients.
1: Absolutely. And, and just like, just like uh, uh, doctors moving into concierge medicine now or, or primary direct care, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of specialists about this and they say you know, 5% of our patients drive 80% of our costs. So most of their patients are paying and maybe just doing a once a year physical, not really accessing them. That's incredibly profitable.
0: Yes. So so what would you suggest for the software firms for clients that keep asking for more? Right, so let's say that we haven't clearly defined what the deliverable is.
1: and And this is a failing I think I put squarely on the firms. They don't do a good enough job diagnosing what it is that the customer wants. And we have a saying at Verisage that, you know, just like in the, it's the second law of medicine, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. You've gotta really go in and get a clear idea of what it is that you're doing. And if you don't have a clear idea of what that scope is, then maybe you should just break it into phases and only and only price and scope what you can or what you know or what you can reasonably judge in a risk world like actuaries do, um, but th- that the onus is on the firm. So I think we need to spend more time in upfront diagnosis. And, and most firms don't do that. They just, they just j- jump into the scope of work. And I'm saying step back and do scope of value first. Try and figure out what it is that the customer really, really wants. What's the end game here?
0: Yep. And and
1: pricing is always about value. Always. Always. And and value is subjective, right? So, you know, if I've got a bottle of water to me in the desert, if I haven't drank in five days, is is priceless. But uh the same quantity of water washing my dog is gonna be worth a lot less. And if I've got water flooded in my basement, now it's got a negative value. It you know, all three of those, um all three of those examples, we didn't change the product. It's H two O. But the value changed radically, which, by the way, can't be explained by accountants or cost accounting. It can only be explained by what the customer is trying to do, which is why I think the subjective value of theory is so powerful. Um, I think what, and as a recovering accountant, I can say this, but what disturbs financial people, MBAs, accountants, whatever, about the theory of value is they think it can be quantified. And I argue strenuously and I can back this up. Uh, value is not a number. It's a feeling.
0: Yeah, I would have said a perception, but I could say that's almost the same thing.
1: Yeah, perception is a fair word, but it, I, I, I use feeling because I think I do think we have feelings towards brands. You know, if you've got an apple sitting in front of you, you probably purchase apple for some Uh, you know, for some reasons that are more driven by feelings rather than just merely perceptions, you might have an affinity for the brand, the company, whatever. Uh, But those are feelings. Same with the car we drive and some of the other things that we buy.
0: Oh, there's no doubt. Okay, so we had a a brief 30 second conversation before we started the podcast and I asked a really hard question and now you've had 10 minutes to think about it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so let's uh, let's let's dive down at that path. You spend a lot of time helping professionals, so lawyers and accountants, figure out how to make more money, how to how to produce more value, charge more value, capture more. Is there something that we could do for people that get a salary? So if we have product managers that are working for a company, how would you advise them to? Increase their value or capture more value?
1: It's a great question and you know, I'm a big proponent Peter Drucker back in 1959 coined the idea of a knowledge worker and the knowledge economy and Basically pointed out that you know, most of the wealth now that's created at least in the developed world comes from working with our minds Not our muscles and the difference between a knowledge worker and say a service worker even or an industrial worker like in a factory is the knowledge worker owns the means of production usually in their heads which makes it very portable which makes it um you know uh, makes them volunteers i believe knowledge workers ultimately are volunteers because you have to earn their loyalty you have to you have to treat them like a human capital investor, and like any investor, they they want a high you know a, a fair economic return, and they want to be treated well. Um, so I think you know when I when I coach knowledge workers today, whether they're young professionals, I tell them, look, you know the, the the economics of the world have shifted. The firms need you more than you need the firms, and the value that you bring to a firm or any enterprise, cannot be measured by the inputs, right? A, 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 somebody can come up with a $10 million idea, <laughs> you know, standing in the shower. Well, what's that worth? If, if you're trading money for time, that, that's that's kind of a dead end because the only way in that world to make more money is is to, you know, work harder. And we've only all got so much time. So I, I want to, I guess my message would be to employees is to think of yourself you know, you have worth based upon the contributions that you bring. The job isn't what's valuable. It's the people in the jobs that are valuable. And if you can stand out somehow and maybe even take some things uh, based upon a, uh, you know, a results uh, basis rather than just trading money for time, uh, I think that's a better use of your intellectual capital.
0: So trading a little bit of salary for bonus upon results and then driving those results might make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's it's my risk. It's, it's the risk, that, because think about it, and I, I make this point all the time, Mark, and it's not very popular. Half my family is are big union members, but I say, look, unions are great. They, they do, they, they've earned uh, their, their workers a higher than above average wage, and Milton Friedman and other economists have proved this throughout the decades, but have you ever met a wealthy labor union member? Right. No, because because they've got a nice floor under them, it also puts an artificial ceiling over their head. If you're not willing to take risk, then you're never going to make super normal or windfall profits.
0: Wow, that's pretty – we're tying that back to what we talked about this morning or earlier, and that is the profit comes from risk. Absolutely. You're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> we did a whole show on this, by the way, but but saying uh, risk is not a four letter word. Um, risk is critical. I, you know, and I, I work with some actuaries, and I love actuaries because when they see risk, they're like firemen; they run towards it. You know, I promise you, if this my office here caught on fire, I'd first went out the door, but there'd be a group of people running in to save me. Well, that's what the way that's the way actuaries treat they look at it as an opportunity professional firms software firms they usually see risk as a threat it's not it's your opportunity
0: yes yes
1: learn how to you learn how to use it and learn how to price for it
0: yes okay so, so let me tell you what i often tell people who work for salaries and then okay. feel free to critique it or offer alternative suggestions my life changed when I became a pricing expert. Mm-hmm. And I often say to people, you want to become an expert. I don't care what it's at, but you want to become an expert. And the reason is you are now unique. And because you're unique, I can't go replace you with a thousand other people. A CPA straight out of school has has no more value than any other CPA beside him or her. And and so that whole concept of being an expert, I think of, as building your own value.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I specialization, you know, deep expertise uh, is 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 incredibly valuable. And and I, I do believe, you know, we live in a specialist world. And and I know there's arguments against that, that we need more generalists and all that. But the fact of the matter is, you and I right now would get on an airplane and fly to. Rochester, Minnesota, to go to the Mayo Clinic to consult with an oncologist that was a world expert on our type of cancer, but we're not going to go up there to uh, consult a general practitioner. So if you're an expert, not only will you get more interesting projects, more interesting work, but you'll be a heck of a lot more valuable.
0: Well, on that, we better <laughs> wrap this up before I make make a mistake. <laughs>
1: Well, Mark, I've really enjoyed this. This It's a great conversation. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, I've enjoyed this too, Ron. If anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that?
1: Uh, Well, like you said, we do our own radio show. It runs live every Friday on Voice America. That's Voice America, not Voice of America. But you can find out everything about the show at thesoulofenterprise.com. Of enterprise.com. We've got all our 130 some odd shows. We've been on the air for two and a half years. And we've interviewed some pricers uh, on that show. So uh, some of your folks want to be uh, listening to uh, either Reed Holden show or Bob Cross or, or Tim Smith. We had on. We've had behavioral economists on, uh, Dan Ariely. We've had Rory Sutherland, marketing experts, other economists, uh, all sorts of guests. And we do talk about these issues as well. Knowledge economy, in fact, the subtitle of the show is business in the knowledge economy. And uh, people can get our contact information there and and send me an email. And I'm on LinkedIn, as you said, and on Twitter, at Ronald Baker, kind of all over the place. So it's pretty easy to get a hold of me. And Verisage is verisage.com. And that's the think tank that you mentioned.
0: Well, and to give you a plug, I just found that podcast, and I listen to podcasts all the time, and yours is spectacular. I love listening to you and Ed have conversations about topics. You guys do a great job.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, Ed's a Vera Sage fellow, and of course, he works for Sage, the software company. They're not related at all. It's just happen to have the same uh, last thing in the name. But um, yeah, I really enjoy it. It's a labor of love, and, and we've had on some tremendous guests. and. Uh, you know, people say, Ed, and I share a brain. It's not really true, but uh, someday we're going to do a show on all the things we disagree about, but (laughs)
0: it's
1: a lot of, it's a lot of fun.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We welcome questions, suggestions, and especially compliments. Please send your comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live.